Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. It's September, which means UK GP practices are gearing up for flu vaccine season. And this year is the biggest one ever, with up to 30 million people in the UK now eligible. And double cough points to incentivise GPs. In today's podcast, we take a closer look at how effective flu vaccination really is, compare notes on what we say to patients who don't want one, and find out how flu season went in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And uh, hi, Navjoy. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, I'm Navjoy Lada. I am head of education at the BMJ and I'm also a locum GP. Great. And um, so, yeah, we're in flu vaccine season, which um, is going to be... Uh, different, I suppose, to other years, but uh, but also very familiar too. I mean, how, how do you do? You, do you feel about it? You, do you get excited when the, the fridges and the practices are f- sort of bulging with flu vaccines? <laughs> Start getting my uh, my deltoid <laughs> ready, yeah, for my jab. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is as a locum. I think I'm somewhat outside of it now, but my my memory of it is is just this like absolutely kind of hectic flurry of activity around preparing and then all this kind of opportunistic um, jabbing I guess of people um, and just this kind of big drive to get everyone in and get it done. Um, So I'm really looking forward actually to this discussion today because it's such a focus of attention but actually thinking about the evidence, thinking about what people think of it and thinking about what it means in this sort of time of covid i think is really yeah like worth yeah, picking yeah. apart um i'm just reminded of um you know when you see a patient and you didn't do the flu vaccine and then you get this sort of message from the practice manager know, the yeah, shame or, of it. or the senior partner <laughs> gonna have yeah, to yeah. bring them back <laughs> yeah. uh, jenny what, what? and then you get the statistics from your own practice oh, right. and you see a lower percentage uptake of the vaccine and you know that you're partially to blame <laughs> yeah, exactly. for that I mean, is it- but all of which drives this like major push for us to yeah. just vaccinate. Yeah, 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 there's not a lot of room for dissent is there, it seems. Uh, I mean, Jenny, your experience in, in, I guess, in the US practicing there, but and then in Cambodia, what, what, tell us, what, is it the same? Is it the same sort of um, frenzy? Um, I think it's similar. So in the US, um, and this must be, well, I'm, I'm, I wonder if this is true in the UK, but in the US, a lot of pharmacies now administer the flu vaccine. So plenty of people who just purely want the vaccine go to a pharmacy. Um, it was actually sometimes a plus heading into flu vaccine season for, you know, the daily practice, because some people would come to the clinic just for the vaccine. And that was a pretty quick and easy visit. Um, but then the flip side was, having folks come in for the other reason and trying to convince them to get the vaccine. Um, and some people, you know, took to that pretty well and others, as you guys can imagine, um, were pretty reluctant. Um, in Cambodia, it was a bit ch- more challenging because um, obviously it's in the Southern Hemisphere, but we were always kind of between the two seasons. So we would get the Southern Hemisphere vaccine strain from places like Australia or New Zealand, but then we'd also get the Northern Hemisphere oh, wow. vaccine. Yeah. So we were always kind of unclear um, 
which season we needed to be preparing <laughs> our patients for, depending on where they were traveling. So it was a little I bit see. in between. But, but presumably flu in Cambodia is, is less common due to climate or other reasons? I, I don't know. Honestly, yeah. I'm not sure of the reasons, but yes, it is less common, but it's kind of more steadier throughout yeah. the year. Anyway, we're already digressing, but uh, interesting to hear <laughs> what what happens in other parts yeah. of the, the world. Um, so we're going to start with thinking about what has happened in the Southern Hemisphere, because um, people always talk about this, don't they? You know, we can predict what this year is going to be like by um, what happened in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, so we'll go straight to you, Jenny, because you've interviewed um, somebody in, in, in New Zealand where you are currently. Tell us more. Yeah, so I had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Nikki Turner. She told me all about what is going on this year with respect to flu. I'm Dr. Nikki Turner. I'm the Director of the Immunisation Advisory Centre, which is based at the University of Auckland. I'm an Academic General Practitioner and Associate Professor in the University of Auckland. And my organisation has responsibility to support the delivery of the National Immunisation Programme, including the National Influenza Programme. We've had a most extraordinary winter season. We have not had that winter peak curve at all um, across mm. all our surveillance. So if we look at general respiratory surveillance within the community, we have um, various ways of looking at it. New Zealand has um, an online group of about 60,000 people that report their respiratory illness week to week. And what New Zealand had in March was that as we started seeing coronavirus, the country went into a full lockdown for a month. Mm -hmm. um, now, at the beginning of that lockdown, many, many people were reporting a lot of respiratory illness, which was really in response to looking for coronavirus. Um, once we came out of the lockdown and towards the end of the lockdown, that dropped dramatically, like very dramatically. Um, and we saw a sharp decline in reports of all respiratory illness through May and June. In terms of hospital data, it's even more extraordinary. Mm. When you look at hospital tracking for cough and fever illness, New Zealand normally peaks around about 10 per 100,000. This year, we didn't really have a peak and it was less than 4 per 100,000. So there's been a dramatic wow. reduction in all respiratory illness in hospital. When you come to flu itself, the story is even more extraordinary. Our national surveillance system has not recorded any actual flu influenza recorded case. Now, we have had sporadic what? cases. Unbelievable. We've had sporadic cases yeah. of influenza identified in hospitals around the country. I've counted maybe 12 or 13 cases throughout the whole country. But there has been no winter flu peak in New Zealand and just sporadic cases around the country. So we haven't eliminated flu, but my mm. gosh, it's extraordinary. The other absolutely riveting tale from New Zealand is that respiratory syncytial virus, um, the mm -hmm. major cause of bronchiolitis in babies mm -hmm. and particularly significant respiratory illness in, in elderly adults as well, is also we're just hardly seeing it at all. We're only seeing sporadic cases of RSV. So we haven't got rid of all respiratory viruses, sadly. Not quite mm -hmm. that a winner. We still are seeing good old rhinovirus, adenovirus, enterovirus. They seem to be way tougher beasts. Um, so they're still around. We're not exactly sure their rates. I suspect they're probably in the usual rates. But they certainly seem to dip with lockdown and social distancing. So an mm -hmm. amazing story from New Zealand. It's just incredible. 
So if you had to say which element or elements of social distancing have really contributed to the drop, um, I'm curious what you think has been most effective because along with social distancing, people have really emphasized and re-emphasized hand hygiene, um, a proper food hygiene. Um, what, what, what is it about the steps we've taken that have, has really made the difference? It would be hard to give a relative attribution to which aspects, but the lockdown mm -hmm. in New Zealand that started late March was quite um, a full lockdown. So mm -hmm. it affected all of those aspects. So mm -hmm. the really original drop in respiratory illness looks essentially like social distancing. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously New Zealand has very much pushed um, hand washing and stay home with your sick. Mm -hmm. So they may have had some contribution, but when you look at the fact that the majority of people were not going to work, were staying in their um, small family bubbles, really mm -hmm. a straight social distancing that at the start seemed to make the difference. Um, New Zealand has not really gone strongly down the track of masks yet. So it's very <laughs> hard to know what the role wearing masks would be. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about what this means and what we can learn from this experience. And I, I appreciate your points that a lot of this, you know, um, is something that we're observing and we can't attribute necessarily um, our, our actions in a direct line to what we're seeing. But, um, you know, thinking about future flu seasons, um, I, I want to ask you what you think might be feasible, what we can learn from this experience? Well, I think firstly, we have taken flu and RSV for granted and just lived with them in our community. And what we mm. are now showing is that traditional public health measures, which include variations of social distancing work, and they work mm -hmm. way more effectively than probably anybody ever realized. So mm -hmm. then the question for our society, for any other society, is how and what do you want to do about that? You know, what That's is right. the degree of burden of respiratory illness that a society wishes to carry versus pragmatically what can we do uh, in the terms of social distancing? Because you have to acknowledge the other side of this is that social distancing um, becomes very difficult for us as, as mm -hmm. social creatures, interconnected, mm -hmm. needing to keep our communities going and thriving, our schools mm -hmm. going, our economy growing. So there is a real tension here. And I think that's a really important dialogue to start for our societies. Do we want to change our social behaviour? How much social distancing can we introduce through winter peaks, uh, mm -hmm. and particularly in communities at high risk of these diseases? So wow, that that's amazing. Very, I'm shocked really about about that. No flu, no flu cases at all. Is that right in, in New Zealand this year? This, well, this, twelve this or thirteen, year. but no clusters of cases. Oh, no clusters, right? Is was my understanding. Um, she said there were kind of sporadic cases across the country, but nothing that really took hold and started that peak that yep. different countries tend to see um, annually. Wow, and and that's. That's, I suppose, that's what happens if you have a lockdown where people don't uh, don't mix for for a month or more. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we I'm sure you guys have had that experience though as well. You know, for anyone who has gone through a period of even relative lockdown, whether that's 
as simple as, um, well, not simple, but whether that's only meant that schools close or whether that has been kind of more full stay-at-home orders, um, you know, we've had fewer cases of the sniffles. Yeah, we've had wow. fewer fewer big diseases, <laughs> yeah. you know, even prompting some people online to say, wait a minute, I've been in complete lockdown. How come I have a cold? <laughs> yeah. And that is weird, isn't it? I mean, we, we've noticed that in our practice that, you know, for six months or whatever, very almost no no one with a cold. Um, mm. And then flu, schools went back and... Yeah, my whole house has had one, and and yeah, <laughs> it is so interesting. But I, it's hard to know, isn't it, with New Zealand because New Zealand has handled COVID yeah. so well. Um, what is it in particular about n- mm. what New Zealand did that has? Um, well, if we're making the assumption that something about what New Zealand did has led to this kind of amazing reduction in in their sort of what they would usually see in flu. What aspect of it um, is it that led to that? I don't know. Because also they had a much stricter, um, like they had much stricter border control as well um, of people coming in and um, than say the UK did um, in addition to a kind of countrywide lockdown as well. Yeah, and as you heard from Nikki, you know, we can't really say which element of the response is most responsible for for these outcomes or these patterns in the flu season that we've seen this year. Um, but, you know, as I was kind of reflecting on that conversation, you know, it really must just be not having contact with other people. And when you do, being super vigilant, almost to the point of, you know, imagining you have COVID on your hands anytime you touch something external to your home. So you're just, you kind of walk in, not touching anything, holding your hands up until you get to the sink in your house, using sanitizer, you know, intensively. Yeah. yeah. Pushing it, pushing the, um, the weight button on the <laughs> level crossing with your elbow. Pushing <laughs> elevator buttons that. with your elbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always done that, I have to say. Oh, really? oh, wow. <laughs> I use, um, yeah, I always use, yeah, my elbow or like uh, the sort of back of my hand for that kind oh, really? of thing. Yeah, I try not to, but you know, this is where this has become a kind of superpower during a pandemic. What it reminds me of is um, we published an opinion article in the BMJ from Margaret McCartney um, recently where she talks about the real need for us to study um, behavioural interventions uh, during the pandemic so that we can get a better picture of actually what impact does mask wearing have? What impact does hand washing have? What impact does social distancing and and at what distance and in what environment? Because, you know, how much of this is not going on public transport? How much of this is, um, you know, schools being closed? I think it's, I find it incredible that, we've had this opportunity to study all of this and and we don't know. I completely agree. And what really resonated with me speaking with Nikki was her point about needing to start a dialogue about this and, and that we've really taken for granted flu and RSV epidemics that they're just going to happen. This is what we live with. Um, you know, and I don't know if this was something you experienced, but my guess is that you did. Um, that at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, people were kind of like, 
flu kills X number of people. This is no worse than the flu. And it took a long time for people to move beyond that. This Mm. isn't even as bad as the flu kind of mindset, which may have contributed to delayed responses uh, by some jurisdictions. Mm. But also that that flu, that, oh, these flu deaths are an acceptable level of deaths. Exactly. But 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 having said that, I mean, do, do we want to live in a world where we all, you know, are we suggesting we permanently have these measures to to prevent the flu? I mean, I I, I don't want to see that world. I, I I'm one of those people who, who who wants to see the end of social distancing. I don't want to see that as a permanent feature in my life. Well, even yeah. as someone who's not particularly sociable. No, I sociable. agree. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind if the tube was a bit less overcrowded in winter, though. <laughs> but I agree with you, Tom. I think I think it's finding that balance but also I think questioning mm. some of these assumptions about mm. and understanding what, yeah. what interventions might make a difference. So yeah. I guess that goes on to the flu vaccine because like I say if we're not really studying which intervention is working then um, you know I guess in New Zealand it may be that they had a particularly good uptake of flu vaccine this year and 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 who's to know if that how to what extent that was the thing that helped or not so um so just bringing us through to yeah our, our full fridges of vaccines and and the conversations we're going to be having with patients about that. Um, we're hearing from what's happened in New Zealand. You know, people m- might be asking, you know, if we're not likely to see much flu this year, why are we undertaking the biggest flu vaccine program in in history? Um, well, what I think the experience shows is that context really matters, and you know, Nikki made the point pretty strongly that lockdown happened just at the beginning of the traditional flu season whereas the UK has been easing mm. out of lockdown mm. yeah so a bigger pool of um, well viral <laughs> activity going on uh, as we go into flu season um, well th- let's let's move on to to the flu vaccine evidence because um, uh, there's been three very influential uh, Cochrane reviews of, of the flu vaccine um, in, in 2018. So there's one on um, just healthy adults, one on over 65s, and there's, there's one focusing on children. Um, so I thought I'd give you some of the, the sort of headlines from that. Um, there's some really useful um, uh, tables that summarise this, this data really nicely. Right, so if you look at some of these outcomes in, in, in healthy adults to begin with, so the, they looked at the, the risk of getting the flu if you just do nothing, uh, and that was 23 per 1,000 people over over a single flu season. Uh, and the risk of um, that happen, of, of getting the, the flu, so this is confirmed laboratory, lo, sorry, this is the risk of laboratory confirmed influenza, uh, goes from 23 per 1,000 to, to 9 per 1,000 yeah, with the flu vaccine. So um, that's a relative risk reduction um, was in the relative risk of 0.41. But if you look at hospitalizations, time off work, um, you know, it's not quite so impressive. So hospitalizations, 147 per 1,000 without and 141 per 1,000 with, and that's, there's no statistically significant difference there. Uh, And time off work, which is, I think, a, a common kind of incentive for, you know, healthy adults to have the flu vaccine, um, Average reduction in working days lost following vaccination was 0.04 uh, days mm. fewer with, with vaccination. So um, I don't know what you make of those. I, I, to me, those are less kind of convincing than perhaps people might expect. Tom, do they talk about harms much? Because I suppose that's the other thing that patients are often interested yeah. in, isn't it? The the harms of vaccination. 
There's uh, two, again, I'm just looking at the summary table, but fever, um, there is an increased risk of fever uh, over the flu season, so from 16 per thousand to 25. Um, but that, again, does, those, the error bar, 95% confidence interval, they pass a relative risk of one, so that's maybe... Um, and nausea, um, again, I think low-quality evidence, but um, from 24 per thousand to 42 per 1,000 with, with vaccination. What I am struck by, by all of this, is um, given as a GP working in the UK, I'm part of this big, you know, flu vaccination programme. I am going to confess that I do not have a great grasp on that evidence. And some of what you're telling me, you know, I feel like I'm hearing for the first time, which is not great. But um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think this idea that you know, with any uh, programme or intervention that, you know, we're discussing with our patients, we should be able to have a good conversation about shared decision making. I am sort of realising I'm not really in that place, I guess, for flu Mm. vaccine. Mm. Well, I asked, uh, so Tom Jefferson is the the sort of lead lead author, well, one of these papers and involved in in all of these very, very heavily. And I asked him for an interview um, to to talk about what GPs should be saying to patients about this. his response was really that it's all there in in, in the paper. You know, we we, we know what the uh, evidence is, and um, I think his view is, um, if I can say this uh, without him being here to, to to back that up, is that really we shouldn't be recommending these. Um, so I instead spoke to another expert in vaccines uh, uh, who does also does research into um, flu vaccination. And is also a GP uh, and uh, got his view on, on this. So uh, maybe some of these questions will be answered or, or maybe some still unanswered. But uh, So we'll hear that interview in a moment after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. You're always a GP, whether you're meeting up with friends, relaxing at home or going to the gym. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice, available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. We go beyond clinical negligence claims to offer advice and representation for GMC inquiries and coroner's inquests. We even offer CPD accredited courses at no extra cost. It's the protection your career deserves, all under one roof. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. So now let's go back to my interview with Jeff Kwong about flu vaccination. My name is Jeff Kwong. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto and the interim director of the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases. So I would say that the Cochrane group seems to take a more of a half glass empty approach to the data, whereas a lot of other people will look at it from like a half glass full um, sort of view. Okay. And um, my take on it is that I think, I mean, I think the number one point is that there are lots of respiratory viruses that are circulating every winter and the influenza vaccine is only designed to prevent influenza infections. And so 
I think a lot of like the Cochrane reviews, a lot of times they focus on what we call ILI, influenza like illness. And so yep. some of those are due to influenza and some of them are due to other respiratory viruses. And so we, we can't expect the influenza vaccine to prevent infections from, you know, RSV or adenovirus or, you know, yep. you know rhinovirus. So all these other viruses that the influenza vaccines are not designed to prevent. Yeah, and I'm just, I've got the um, some summary tables in front of me. And, and I suppose, to be fair, um, in the over 65s, they're saying the placebo, the risk of laboratory confirmed influenza, 57 per, per thousand in a, in a flu season versus 24 per thousand in those vaccinated. So there is, and that, that that's, you know, a significant, um, statistically significant. So there, there is some improvement there, isn't there? But I suppose when they look at deaths and um, those those more kind of, those are the crucial endpoints, perhaps. There, there, there is. Has there ever been? Is that ever been found? Is that is, is this is this accepted? This conclusion that it doesn't affect mortality rates. Well, I mean, I, I think it. I think the problem is that there's are have been no studies that have used the most specific outcome, which is laboratory confirmed deaths, in a randomized control right. trial, right? So you would yeah. need like a Why massive study. To, like because yeah. the the deaths from influenza are not so common that we can detect mm. with laboratory testing. Oftentimes, when we're testing people, it may be um, you know they may have already like you have people who can get infected. They clear the virus, then they have like complications of their underlying conditions, and then they die. And that death was probably um, you know precipitated by in, the influenza infection, but we may or may not detect mm. it. And so these trials need yeah. to be massively, like, you know, we need to enroll massive numbers to detect, um, you know, differences in deaths um, that are like lab confirmed, you know, with influenza infection. And that's why so far we, we have like these trials looking at like influenza infection, and then you can have more serious outcomes that are more rare, but there we just don't have the adequately powered trials uh, for yeah. those more severe So outcomes. I guess there, there is a bit of a leap of faith if I could put it that way, I suppose, between um, the evidence that's there and, and saying, well, okay, well, we just need to do this because, you know, it, it's not it's not possible to or feasible to do this this level of trial. But you know, what the evidence that there is good enough is, is that kind of where we are. That that is, and I I think it's um, you know, I think there's a lot of times that we take leaps of faith with a lot of medications that, mm. for whatever reason, we don't seem to be willing to do for the influenza vaccine. But I think, you know, a good, mm. you know, an, an example that I like to give is the, you know, the statins, right? So, you know, secondary prevention of statins, I think there's everyone can agree that we should be giving people statins for secondary prevention. People who already have established coronary artery disease, um, you know, had a previous myocardial infarction, we should be putting them on statins. But, you know, the, mm. ins, like the, you know, reduction in, you know, further cardiovascular events, whether they be deaths or, you know, myocardial infarction, is you know, the risk reduction is only maybe 25 or 35%. Uh, whereas for influenza vaccine, you know, the reduction is about, you know, 40%, 50%, 60%. Mm. And everyone says, oh, well, that's not a very effective vaccine. Why do we bother with it? But no one ever questions, no patients ever question you, if, you know, if we tell them they need to yeah. be on a statin, that they should take their statin especially yeah. if they've already had okay. a you know a heart attack yeah 
It's it's funny, that, isn't it? It's it's a good analogy. Um, I make very terrible analogies on the podcast, so uh, that that's a good one. <laughs> but um, why is that though? Is that because we assume there's this sort of misguided idea that vaccinations mean you should not get this condition at all? Is that is, is that it? Or yeah, I, I think so. I think we might be spoiled by the very effective vaccines, right? Like you look at yeah. you know HPV vaccine. Uh, measles, there's lots of vaccines where we have like 99% effectiveness. Mm, mm. And so when we have a vaccine that's only, you know, 40, 50, 60% effective, um, mm. and especially one that we need to get every year. I mean, I think that's another problem with yeah. influenza vaccines that we need to give every year. Um, it becomes quite tedious. And, you know, it's mm. a lot of work for, you know, to vaccinate as many people as possible every yeah. single year. So I think yeah. there's lots of yeah. knocks against influenza vaccine. And then there's always concerns yeah. about, you know, did we pick the right strains? And then people say, well, it didn't work because I still got sick. And, you know, may, maybe they got <laughs> influenza. Maybe they had another respiratory virus. And so there's a lot of things going against influenza vaccines. Yeah. that we, we don't have yeah. vaccines against all respiratory viruses, right? And, you know, but we right. think of it right. as only as influenza. Like, you know, I got the flu. Uh, we, yeah. we don't know if there's really influenza or something else. You know, however you interpret that evidence, what you what the, the leaf that you give to your pe- patients, I find is often doesn't really reflect. I think the the, the truth of, of the evidence, you know, however you interpret it. You know, it tends to always be quite. You know, you must get the flu vaccine because if not, you know, you're at high risk of death. You know, it, it, it seems to really use that sort of fear, um, and I would say, you know, over over exaggerating probably the risks. I guess for good for good reason because we want people to have the vaccine, but uh, it doesn't always feel that transparent to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. As in, mm. I don't know. Like, I'm definitely not an expert in, you know, knowledge translation or you know health communication. Um, mm. But the folks who do that, maybe that's what they they feel is necessary. That they need to simplify it and to, mm. you know, that maybe in the process of simplifying the message, then the subtleties get lost, right? I mean, mm. the thing is not everyone gets influenza infection every year, right? Like maybe five, 10% of the population get influenza infection. Yeah, I mean, there's some people who say, you know, you really like, if only 5% of the population getting the influenza vaccine every year, then 19 out of 20 times, it was unnecessary to get it. Mm. But how do you know which year it is that you're gonna get the influenza infection? Right. So, you know, I mean, the problem is you can say also that, you know, some years we get H3N2, which causes much more serious complications than H1N1. But we don't know at the beginning of the year whether it's going to be an H3N2 season or H1N1. You know, you could look at pattern, but then, you know, influenza just throws us a curveball and says, oh, actually another H3N2 season, you know, two consecutive H3N2 seasons. Just when you think you figured it out, it'll always change. So... What I think is interesting to think about is that the key or one of the key arguments that I have been describing to patients in terms of getting a flu vaccine this year in particular is in order specifically to avoid contact with the health system Mm. because of flu 
and thus exposing yourself to coronavirus. Mm. But if the Cochrane review data is generalizable and we're not actually reducing hospitalizations that much at all, then does that argument even mm. matter? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Um, reduce your contact with health service by coming in and having contact with the health service <laughs> right. And, right. And, and joining this line of um, 50 people waiting to have their flu vaccine. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that just brings us back to this question about the other public health measures that we typically take in response to a viral illness, whether that's flu or now coronavirus, you know, and is it actually more important to get a vaccine or more important to avoid queuing up with people that you're not physically distanced from? And you'll avoid potentially other, you know, respiratory viruses as well that way, not just influenza. Um, I want to pick up on, I, I was perhaps a bit unfair about some of the, the leaflets we, we give to patients there. I, I, I was looking through quite a few of them in preparation for this and um, and they don't say you're at high risk of death, but they, they do say just very, very, you know, trying to simplify things, just saying usually there is an increased risk of, you know, being in hospital or you know, whatever. And um, But it, it's very hard to find more detail than that in, in any sort of public facing information about the flu vaccine or, or actually any vaccine I, I found um, and you can see why because of the, the need to simplify and it's, it, you know we're confused I'm really confused <laughs> at this point in our conversation about about the evidence because you know you look on the CDC website they've got really detailed explanation of the evidence and it, it's almost completely you know, it is completely different um, to, to what we read in, in the Cochrane review so um but what do you think about the stuff we give to patients, the messages we give to patients? Is 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 it is it transparent enough? It's so tricky. I mean, that's such a tricky question because I think that, um, I mean, I would say if, if we're feeling confused, then I can't imagine how our patients must be feeling <laughs> about um, this. But um, I think with vaccination in general, you know, we have to set this conversation in context, which is that, you know, there is... A, a subset of the population that, you know, there there is this kind of polarisation about the discussion of vaccines and this kind of overstatement of vaccine harms and harms that, you know, lots of conspiracy theories and harms that haven't been shown to be uh, true or associated with vaccines. I'm, of course, thinking of MMR and autism um, specifically, but there are others. But um so putting it in that context, I think I can understand the need to have a kind of um, simplified uh, message and also to um, try and um, emphasise the importance of vaccination if that's the kind of context within which, you know, uh, people will be coming into the discussion. Um, but I also think that there is um, a real, you know, I, I, well, speaking personally, I think if you know, there is probably something to be said for if someone's on the fence about having a vaccination or not sure, being able to be open and, you know, say, well, we don't know about this, but we think on balance it it's more more mm. more good than harm. Um, and being able to do that in a thoughtful and transparent way, um, that to me seems like it would be useful, but I, I don't feel like I'm there yet. Mm. I'm definitely not either. 
Um, just like you, Navjoy, a lot of the statistics you described from the Cochrane Review were new to me as well. And, you know, my usual vaccine spiel probably does not fully address, it, it does not fully address the potential harms of the vaccine. Um, and I'd kind of gotten into this pattern of when people complain about getting sick from getting the vaccine, kind of using that coincidence theory that, no, 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 there are just lots of other viruses circulating around. You probably just had something brewing at the time you got the vaccine. But is that true? I don't know. I hadn't heard the data on fever or nausea compared to, you know, in in an unvaccinated population compared to a vaccinated population. Um, So I think, you know, um, I think we feel these pressures to increase our vaccination rates because we believe we are protecting people when maybe the evidence doesn't support that. And at least I am probably guilty of not fully going into the detail of the risks. Yeah, no, me too. And But then also what you're saying about what impact would it have um, if when we're having a conversation about the flu vaccine, if we were to say, actually, there is this slight association with fever and nausea, but we think it's going to be quite short lived. And actually, it's it, mm. probably the net net um, effect is that it's not as bad for you as influenza would be. Um, you know, that that seems to me more the conversa- kind of conversation I should be having. Mm. But I wonder if this year, given everything that we've all been through this this year with coronavirus, pe- people's perception of risk and will be different, probably be more, much more willing and keen to have the, va- the vaccine. Yeah, I spoke to Nikki about that as well. And she shared a little bit about the experience in New Zealand of increasing flu vaccine coverage, um, but also some inter- interesting uh, information about later in the year with a new COVID cluster, um, some of the vaccine uptake going down. So let's have a listen. I do have to say with the flu vaccination program this year, New Zealand did really well and we've increased the coverage quite dramatically for over 65s. We've increased it by more than 10% and actually we've increased it even higher for the more vulnerable groups, particularly the Māori and Pacific who traditionally have been much lower. So we still have equity gaps. But the other thing about having the spiritual illness and a, a a greater awareness of respiratory illnesses. It did actually help our adult influenza program to be more mm. effective. Um, and we did put more resources into it. So that's also a bonus, is that the country in general, people in general now are more aware of respiratory illnesses, how they spread, and whatever we can do to prevent them, which does include influenza vaccination. Mm. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, and I and I am glad also that that there has been a focus on vulnerable populations, even if, as you say, there are still some equity gaps. Um, I'm wondering if you saw any resistance from any kind of age groups or different people toward the flu vaccine. 
Well, I mean, traditionally, there's always been some degree of resistance to flu vaccine for a whole lot of reasons. And I think probably the most predominant one is, is what we call the hero syndrome, that I don't get mm-hmm. flu and I don't get it severely, so I don't need the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And the second most is just not getting around to it. It's a yearly vaccine. It's a hassle. Those are the most mm-hmm. common. And then there's been traditional myths around all the time that I can get flu from the flu vaccine. My neighbor, mm-hmm. you know, had some mm-hmm. horrible disease after they had flu vaccine. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of a coincidence problem with flu vaccine that you get the flu vaccine and then something happens so therefore it must be the vaccine um so that's been around for a long time and new zealand has you know fairly mediocre vaccination coverage our over 65s um around uh, sort of just under 60 percent previously so it's not great um however what happened at the start of this year with the lockdown is that New Zealand did do collectively emotionally well as a country. I take my Mm -hmm. hat off to our government, Mm -hmm. our prime minister, and all our health services that we did collectively in the first lockdown get together. Now, as a result, I believe, of general community trust and what we were trying to do together as a country, there was less resistance to flu vaccination Mm -hmm. than traditionally. Mm -hmm. Now, that was great back in the lockdown periods and then moving out. However, over time, as things get harder, that we are seeing um, mistrust and discomfort and concerns rise again. And they are also affecting the other vaccinations, including flu vaccinations. To what can we attribute that mistrust? What do you think can GPs can do to try to counter some of the mistrust or discomfort that folks may, may feel with vaccines? Yes, well, of course, that's not a linear answer. And some <laughs> communities talk themselves. And the more you talk amongst yourself, the more the mistrust grows. And obviously, we've got a huge magnification effect from social media. But mm-hmm. in my experience, and I believe the literature also would bear me out, is that it's about trust at every level. So that as a frontline general practitioner, nurse, frontline provider, if you have a good relationship with the people you're talking to, they will trust your advice and they will trust the conversation to flow and feel comfortable with their decision making. So I believe the key, the starting point is to ensure our frontline healthcare providers are well-resourced, well-knowledged and confident and have the emotional ability to have good engaging relationships. And then it becomes easier if the steps above you Um, the health services, the government services also lend into the trust. So it's very hard for me as a frontline healthcare provider to maintain trust if the services above me look chaotic or Mm -hmm. there's any sense that they're being dishonest. Um, And I think the other big message is to remember the marginalised communities and the equity gaps. So it's really clear that some communities feel left out and not listened to. So the importance of listening, hearing the narrative, feeding it back in and allowing the dialogue to flow in a very supported way so that you can really work it through and bring in the science and the clear advice. Um, It works. It really works. New Zealand improved its childhood immunisation program dramatically over 10, 15 years. And the focus was on the systems and the frontline providers. Mm. It's how we have our conversations, how we support the people we talk to, and how we develop trust between ourselves that we may not be perfect, but at least this advice is going well and looking pretty good at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, she's spot on there, isn't she, with, with everything. I mean, I agree with everything there. And, and amazing how it comes back to some of the themes of this podcast, if you look back through our, our episodes so far. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that theme of, you know, having a relationship with your patients, importance of continuity, um, the importance of trust, you know, that stuff we've talked about um, before. Mm. Yeah, and they're sort of um, remembering the more marginalised or, you know, the communities and, and those those who don't feel part yeah. of... <laughs> Of, yeah, for sure. And I I was thinking um, as um, she was talking about that, about how so much of our measure of a successful flu vaccine campaign is just numbers, just like crude numbers, like percentage coverage. And actually, to what extent do we dig into that and work out, you know, um, work out are those more marginalised or more excluded um, patients um, being reached? Yeah, we could... Um... I guess it's not feasible, but if, if we could somehow measure, you know, patients who have, who you've had a, a conversation, you know, a, a meaningful conversation where you've reached a shared decision, um, seems a better mark of quality than people who got the vaccine and, or, or whatever, you know, people who take a statin or you know have their blood pressure yeah. checked. Yeah, we've definitely talked about that for statins, I think. I, I remember having this conversation when NICE were changing their guidelines on primary prevention um, and, you know, and the advice about giving statins. And the, the measure then in primary care, on COF at least, was that, you know, what percentage of your patients were on a statin. But actually, like like a lot like this, you know, maybe we should be trying to record the quality of our conversations. I hate to be cynical, and I also agree with um, what Nikki said. I, I have to say that listening again to our interview, I'm I'm thinking about some of my friends in New York doing phone banking, encouraging people to vote in the upcoming U.S. election, and one of my friends in particular who was so excited about flipping a voter, and I kind of think vaccine, and particularly flu vaccine, is people are so divided. You're either just going to get it every year or you're just never going to bother. And it's, I think it's very difficult, even if you have a trusting relationship with somebody, to kind of encourage them one way or the other, you know, um, depending on their starting position. Do you think that's true? But maybe that's... Do you think people are really that divided? Because I think that there is this tendency of things like social media to really amplify the extremes. But I think I think speaking to um, people there, I think there are some people who are genuinely not sure, you know, who think, well, I've read this and, you know, my neighbour said this, but actually I'd like to have some more information. And I feel like for me, that's probably where I could do better is in trying to provide some of that more reliable evidence and information and have that conversation in kind of an open way. But I think you're right, Jenny, there are definitely people whose minds are made up, you know, who won't be, um, you know, you won't, you, what, no amount of conversation could sort of persuade, persuade them. Um, but I, I feel like there, there probably are more people than we think who are in the middle. What I'm taking from this, though, is that I should stop trying to persuade people and that it's not my job to persuade them, but rather to just have a conversation. I think you're right. I mean, but I think that is where, I don't know, I think having a nuanced conversation around vaccines, I find very difficult. I mean, I think if you take one 
if you take it one vaccine at a time, okay, if we're looking at the evidence for influenza, I feel, yeah, like confident, like, okay, I can understand that evidence and I can take that away and, and know how to talk about that in a consultation. But then do I know that for, I don't know, HPV vaccination and uh, all the other vaccine programs that we have, um, you know, I think, and, and understanding the nuances of it, I think that's where I struggle and, you know, particularly set against this background that we've talked about or where some people are dead against vaccines and you feel as a healthcare professional, you have a responsibility to kind of promote the benefits of vaccines. It's all very difficult, I think. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about um, something I heard Richard Lehman talk about, um, the shared understanding, to, to trying to move away from this idea of shared decision-making, which actually... A lot of patients don't want shared decision making. They some some still prefer that more paternalistic model, and and they get I hear that a lot in consultations. Like, oh, I don't know, doc. Do you think I should have it? Just tell me what to do. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, tell me what to do. And 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 if you have that relationship with them, and and I guess the shared understanding that that this is the roles that we we're playing, and I'm I'm not going to tell you everything I know about the flu vaccine because you know you, you want me to. To, to give you my professional opinion because that's what you want from me as your doctor um, but you have another patient who who doesn't want that at all and they, they just want you mm. to lay out the facts and let them make a decision and get very upset I think if you try to foist your, mm-hmm. your opinion on them um, so I, I, I find that useful to think you know, not always shared decision making, but a shared understanding, and from yeah. that flows. No, the, that's such the, a good point, and that is the kind of art of general practice as well, isn't it? Is that we are mm. able to tailor that um, accordingly. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit about this book that um, I think is really great. This author Eulabis wrote on immunity from the perspective of a new mom considering vaccines for her child. And she kind of bridges the medical world with the ethical world um, and looks not only at some of the science behind vaccine and immunity, but also what it means to literally inoculate um, her son and also ourselves as a community. Um, And there was a review Um, that I just wanted to read a little bit from. So in this review of her book, um, they write, one suggestion Biss has is to abandon the term herd immunity. In her analysis, it is a negative metaphor, one that suggests we are cattle, waiting perhaps to be sent to slaughter. And it invites, she continues, an association with the term herd mentality, a stampede towards stupidity. In its place, Biss suggests the concept of shared immunity, rooting the metaphor instead on natural examples like the cooperation of honeybees and collective problem solving. If the herd assumes we are foolish, the notion of shared immunity roots the nature of vaccine coverage in cooperation. So that's the end of this episode of Deep Breath In. Um, We're going to spend some time now thinking about other things we can rebrand with the word shared to make them sound better Uh, thank you to Nikki and Jeff for joining us today Uh, thanks to Navjoy and Jenny as well, see you next time 
Thanks, Tom. Bye. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Bye. Uh, and thank you to Duncan Jarvis, our producer, who um, <laughs> has a nightmare trying to edit this into something uh, that sounds good. So thank you, Duncan. So we'll leave you with our deep breath out, which is our moment just to relax and uh, get away from the strains and stresses of, of being a GP. This time we're having a piece of music from Stravinsky, which he composed during the Spanish flu of 1918.